0: We've been looking at the objects of our hope. Today, the appearing of Jesus Christ. I have lots of texts, verses of scripture that I want to look at. We're starting in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Titus chapter 2, 11 to 15. I hope you have a Bible. In some form or another, never come to church without a Bible. For the grace of God... Has past tense appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting, so this is future. Waiting for our blessed hope. The blessed hope in the Bible is not you dying and going to be with Jesus. That is not, that's, that's a wonderful truth, but it's not the blessed hope. The blessed hope in the New Testament is not you going to heaven, it's Jesus coming to earth. Bodies being raised, a new creation. That's the blessed hope in the New Testament. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll keep going. Who gave himself, past tense, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, who are zealous for good works. Don't trip past that word. The the idea here is a Christian lives life following Jesus beyond the level of mere duty. I I have to. If I'm a Christian, I, I, I can't commit adultery. I can't take the Lord's name in vain. I have to go to church. I have to read my Bible. I any number of of things. That is sub-Christian. What he's talking about is as zealous. So there's one of the marks of redemption is it forms in your heart. Jeremiah prophesied that there'd be this new covenant and there'd be a new heart given. And the idea is that as I grow in Christ, I'm moving beyond the level of, well, this is just what Christians are supposed to do. I'm zealous. I can't wait. There's, there's There's a different heart Zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort, that's the positive part. Rebuke, that's the part nobody likes. With all authority, let no one disregard you. Don't let that happen, Paul says. Notice there are these two comings of Jesus in those five verses. One is called The appearing of grace. And the other is called the appearing of glory. Those words are in the text. The first coming is described in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. That has happened. The second is described in verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory. There's the other word. Of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice how inseparably these two different events are intertwined in this passage. So, verse 11 talks about Christ's first coming of grace. And then verse 12 talks about the effects of Christ's first coming. How that changes things for me here and now. Training us, 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live Self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And then notice as well, just while we're flying over the top of the text, that in describing Christ's first coming, verse 14 does exactly the same thing as verse 12. Who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So then notice how those two verses, 12 and 14, the purpose of Christ's first coming, they kind of make an Oreo, like a sandwich. Around verse 13, which talks about the certainty, the hope of Christ's second coming, waiting for our blessed hope, 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Okay, why did I just do all that? Because most of us, find it easier to believe in the first coming of Jesus than the second. There's a reason for that. It's obvious. Because our world, believers and unbelievers, we have seen the first coming of Jesus and we've never seen the second. And and that's part of what it is to be physical with physical eyes and memories and thoughts it's part of being human part of the limitations of being human in this world and and for that reason paul's laboring to show me that both the first coming and the second coming of jesus they are tied together in the one plan of salvation so so the same god is behind them both it's his agenda The same God is behind them both in his sure purpose for mankind. And so that's why the scriptures tie the certainty of the still unseen second coming. They tie it to the visible, provable first coming of Jesus. And what Paul is saying is this is this is one plan in God's God's mind. It's not like one is sure and the other one is he's crossing his fingers. It's been his one plan of redemption all along. You just can't take one, both parts. So the second coming isn't to be thought of as some kind of afterthought or a bonus. It's part of the same plan of salvation that you and I are already participants in. Paul says that the first coming the first coming was to create and teach righteousness for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us. Isn't that interesting? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions And and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And then the second coming is to judge and reward according to this self-controlled, upright, godly life in this present age. And so, so the hope, this blessed hope, it's a certain hope. The same Jesus who came the first time will come again a second time. And I can be as sure of the second coming as I am of the first coming. Paul links the invisible to the observable, the future to the past. The Bible doesn't just do this occasionally. There's this great help to our unbelief. Here's another place. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, watch, having been offered once. When was that? That's the cross, right? Offered once to bear the sins. He makes it clear. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So, in other words, just as certain as the first, the second is inevitable. Not to deal with sin, that's done, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So I want to ask you, do you eagerly await his coming? Don't you say, oh sure, of course. Those who are eagerly waiting for him. Is that you? And I don't mean, I don't mean, do do you believe in the doctrine of the second coming? I don't mean that. And I don't mean, do you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is coming again? And I don't even mean, do you think it's better to go to heaven than to go to hell? I mean, are you Are you eagerly awaiting him? Is is he that precious to you? Are you anxious to see him in all of his majesty and glory? Do you love his appearing, as the text says? Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not out to put false condemnation on anybody because nobody thinks about the second coming every minute of the day. Nobody in this room. Even though you love Jesus, you don't think about his coming every minute of every day. You don't even think about your wife or your husband every minute of every day. And I assume you love him or her. So it can't be that. What I do mean is this. Does does your mind, almost by default does your mind at least frequently return to the idea of Jesus coming back? Is it it kind of a natural home, a natural resting place for your mind during the day? Does it just draw back there? When you do think about his coming, Are you eager about it? Well, of course I am, Pastor Don. Well, then this question. Do the present concerns, trials, and especially treasures of your present life, do they all seem small and dull when you think about the coming of Jesus? Because they should. They should. That's the really important question. Or are you you too immersed, too involved in this present world to long for a better one? Do you think you'll be embarrassed when Jesus comes again? Do you think you'll be confident when you see him face to face? Those are important questions. They point out, at the very least, the spiritual health of my soul. And so I want to focus on three truths just three truths that Paul outlines about hope for Jesus second coming in our text the Titus 2:13 waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God did you notice this it's important These people that say that there's nothing in the New Testament that says Jesus is divine or he's God. Do you see that? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Three things. One, the hope we have is a blessed hope, waiting for the Blessed hope, that word blessed or blessed if you're an old King Jameser, it's such a religious sounding word, it, it's, it's almost useless in conveying anything important anymore, it's just overused. It's like hallelujah, it's a great song raise a hallelujah and if you ask most people what does hallelujah mean they couldn't tell you but they're standing there hallelujah and and what's that word mean do you know (laughs) we were all singing very excitedly about it blessed is kind of like that after being bumped around in slogans and bumper stickers and plaques, it, there aren't many edges left on it. So I want to say two things. I think Paul has two things in mind when he says the hope is a blessed hope. A, it's a blessed hope because it's the only hope that has eternity in it. Nor the hope does. There are a lot of fine things in this life. God's good to us in so many different ways. But without this blessed hope, they will all fade into emptiness and misery. Paul would just never, ever let us forget this. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, where he says, if in this life only we have even this, hope in Christ he's talking about, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Paul's point is obvious. So in, in, a, in an attempt maybe to, to shock us into thinking this through, he says even religious aspirations and dreams, the best of our thoughts and intentions, the finest, most moral works we do, he, he says all of them are meaningless if there isn't hope for eternal life with Jesus Christ. That's really an important point. It cuts to the heart of of the sometimes misdirected hope that people fall into when it comes into their religious faith. There are all sorts of people who like Jesus Christ. They like his teaching about love. They like his teaching about forgiveness. They like his teaching about do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And they build their hope on bringing this Christian ethic to bear on this world's troubles. And that's noble enough. But it's still just an earthly hope. With all the moral teaching of Jesus kind of squirted over the top of it. Like, like whatever that whipped cream is on top of a Sunday. And that's why Paul says, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ. We're of all people. Most to be pitied. Religious hopes that die with the grave are useless. Moral teachings and examples that die with the grave are useless. Jesus never came. Just to give the earthly hope of inner peace, a little bit more self-esteem, or some humanitarian heart. All of us need to know that we have a hope that has substance and permanence to it. Something that the ravages of time can't wear out. Anything less than that is just hollowed out Christianity. Peter, Peter captured the Christian hope with all of its visceral gusto. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to to a living hope. So it's like yeast, this hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is, look at those, imperishable. These are great adjectives. Undefiled, unfading the verb, kept in heaven for you, who by God's grace are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice notice those two important words, living hope. Anything that doesn't outlast the cemetery is not a living hope. I said Paul had two ideas in mind when he described Christ's second coming as a blessed hope. It, It has eternity in it, blessed. The second thing blessed means is it's available to everybody. It's available to everybody. Second Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17 says this. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. See, this, knowing this, brings that. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The money words are good hope through grace, 16. Here's what makes this a blessed hope. It has eternity in it. And it can't be and needn't be earned. You don't have to qualify. It's not like those rides at Wonderland. You have to be a certain height. It's grace. the Good good hope through grace. It's a result of the free, eternal grace of an almighty God. So it's blessed because it's in everyone's reach. Everyone in this room can have a blessed, eternal hope in Christ Jesus So point number 2 This hope is a visible hope It's blessed it's visible Titus 2:13 Waiting for our blessed hope the important words are these the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to tell you why I I circled those words. It's stunning to me to read some great theological scholars who have written about the second coming of Jesus. I don't want to wear you out. I have two quick paragraphs. William Neal, I have books by William Neal, University of Nottingham. He wrote in the Moffat Commentary on Thessalonians, these words. The day of the Lord is God's timeless judgment, which is past, present, and future. In a sense, it is always to come. In a sense, it is always present. And in a sense, it is already past. Thus, the parousia, the second coming, is like creation, in a real sense, timeless. Not an historical event, not an actual event, but just the underlying purpose of history. Ernest Best, professor of divinity, University of Glasgow, in his commentary says this, and then I'll, I'm, I'm done with the technical stuff. He says, We have to conclude that the end is something with which men will never have to reckon in practical terms. Again, excluding the possible destruction of our own planet. And that it is wrong to think of a real physical end which God achieves in some public way as it is to think of a real physical beginning. Now, listen to me. It's almost as though, it's almost as though John had these kinds of opinions already in his mind when he wrote these strong words about the appearing of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. You know these words from 1 John 3 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's, that's us right now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's probably very few texts that I've preached on more than that text. I love it. And John's whole point seems to be that my transformation, I'm I'm not done. I know you think, Pastor Don, like you're a saint. But I'm not done. Nowhere near done with what God wants me to be. Nor are you. And John seems to say that my final transformation into Christ-likeness is dependent upon my actually seeing him. Wrong end of the thing. My, my seeing him when he returns. That's why John... listen. John is so careful not to talk about Jesus' arrival, but his appearing. You can arrive all by yourself, right? You're supposed to pick somebody up at the airport, 4 a.m., the alarm doesn't go. They arrive alone. You can arrive all by yourself. You can't appear all by yourself. To appear you have to have somebody seeing you. That's what appearing means. And so John says, my transformation into Christlikeness is contingent upon his appearing and me seeing him. And then he adds those words, just as he is. You will see Jesus. Everyone in this room, everyone in this room, you will see Jesus when he comes again. Ready or not, like it or not. The Bible is so clear on that. Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. How many eyes? Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So it's not just fans of Jesus who are going to see him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Come, Lord Jesus. So, our blessed hope, it's blessed. I said there were three things. It's blessed, and we talked about why it's blessed. Two reasons. It's eternal and it's free. That's what makes it blessed. It's a visible hope. That's what we were just looking at. He will appear. Every eye will see him. Third, closing, it's a glorious hope. I get that back in our original text. Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory. Of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I think. The coming of Jesus. Is described as glorious. for, For two reasons. It's. Glorious because of the glory of Jesus Christ himself. You know, when we, glory is like a hard word to define. It's like this. If I say, and and it's because of the nature of, of the word. If I say to you, fire truck. I think everybody in the room, you can get a picture of what I'm talking about, right? If I say to you, Zebra. And you close your eyes, everybody in this room can picture it, and I'll bet you we're all picturing the same thing. Now, here's another word. Everybody try and picture it. Beauty. Do you see the difference? Well, beauty isn't a fire truck, it's not a zebra. Beauty is, beauty is bigger than that. We all know it when we see it you're driving you're driving along you know 17 mile highway by pebble beach and the sun's going down over the pacific ocean and you look out and well that's beauty it's beauty glory is like that the appearing of the glory we use those terms so much they're like hallelujah glory glorious Glory to God. And they re- they, they're good words because they do evoke something. They, they evoke a, a religious thing that wells up inside, but sometimes without carrying a lot of content. They, they have an emotional draw, which is good. That's not a bad thing. But sometimes the emotional draw comes without any attachments, any content. Paul helps us in our text. The coming of Jesus is the coming of great glory because it's the coming of God himself. That's right out of the text. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, God Almighty comes. We simply have, we have nothing, nothing in human history to measure that by, to compare it to, to relate it to. All the other arrivals are small and insignificant when measured by that event. There's just no clearer claim to the glory, the majesty, the deity of Jesus Christ than that powerful description. Just imagine, the one who made the universe is coming to earth. He made it. Whatever pictures struggle to conjure up this event... All our imaginings are just way too small and way too dull. We we can't handle it. But we do have at least a small hint in the New Testament. We read about it in the text that Pastor Chris read. Peter just had this one time tiny glimpse of what he called glory. Just once. And at his death time, he still remembered it in 1 Peter 1, 15-19. I will make every effort so that after my departure, that's his death, you may be able at any time to recall these things, his teachings. Why does it matter, Peter? What, What makes you think what you have to say is that important? Well, for... We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That quote. Quotation mark. Peter says we ourselves, we heard that voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. Keep going. And we have something more sure. Are you kidding me? More sure then seeing the transformation of Jesus, he just glowed. I don't know what that looked like. A voice <laughs> that Peter says we all heard. So you're standing there, you see Jesus in the flesh, transformed before your eyes. You hear a voice from heaven, the mountain shakes. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then Peter says, We have something way better than that. And you go, No, are you kidding? What could be better than that? The prophetic word. How how can this possibly be better? In what planet is this better? On what planet does this give you more assurance? There's books all over the place. We've got books. Here's why. That experience that Peter talked about that was so transforming and powerful for him Died in impact when Peter died. We wouldn't even know about it had he not written about it. See, what we have is revelation with permanence to it. It's truth that keeps on living. And experience comes and goes, like the one on the mountain. This will always be true. which you will do well to pay attention. He's talking about this now. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. I don't know what this means. He's talking about something that happens in our hearts, for sure. He's not talking about just a historic event. But there's, there's something. There's a glory in his coming. His coming now. It's glorious. That's the third thing about it. That the world has never seen before. Peter says it's something, this is the only way I can interpret those words. It's something that will light up your insides like the sun coming up in your heart. It's something that will will heat you up inside. That will forever, ever change you. Now we know from John's words, we know now what the change is, don't we? Do you remember what the change is? Here's what's going to the morning star rising in my heart. And here's what the change is. John says, when you see him, suddenly, I'm going to be just like him. And he says, it's like, it's like the sun coming up in your heart for the very first time. Such is the glory of that event. Oh, i got to hurry. I said there were two things. The coming of Jesus is glorious be- because he's God and secondly I just hinted at it by what it's going to produce in our own my own life and that's John chapter three one to three I'm not going to read it again so there are actually two purifying processes if you take those those words let me just I'll just put them up I know I said I wouldn't There are actually two. see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's now. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, that's the second coming, we shall be like Him. We shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him. We don't usually think of purity happening like that, do we? If I was to ask you what makes you pure, your answer would probably be the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? We know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And yet, that's not what he's talking about, is it? Everyone who has, who thus hopes in him, purifies himself. Isn't that surprising? As he is pure. So first, we receive power to overcome sin as we fix our minds on Christ's second coming. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. And secondly, our lives receive total transformation from everything the moment we see Jesus. So those two kinds of purifying that take place in that text. So our hope is a blessed hope, it's a visible hope, it's a glorious hope, and I couldn't finish this message without also saying, point number four, the second coming of Jesus is a test. Paul puts it like this, if you want to see what I consider to be the best definition of salvation in the New Testament, this is my go-to. What is conversion, Pastor Don? there. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. Is that up there? Let's all read it together, okay? For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is wrath to come. I I don't know how to erase that. I wish I did. As far as I know, here's how I want to wrap up. As far as I know, there are only two ways to know you're saved. There are only two ways to know you're saved. First, you immediately turn from the previous loves of your heart. Turn to God from idols. So in other words, conversion doesn't just add to what I used to be. It replaces what I used to be. Paul says, I know know about the grace of God in your life because you you turned away from your idols. There's a a to and a from in conversion. Conversion. You can't just turn to God without turning from. So the idols are what your life used to worship. They're the things you gave your time to. They're the things you gave your affection to. They're the things you gave your admiration to, what you prized. And conversion comes and it turns you from those things. I take that to mean my life used to face those things, so I'm facing Ron and Chris. Now, if I'm going to turn, I, I, can't, I can't keep facing that way, right? How you, you turn from idols, sorry, to serve the living and true God. That, that's what it means to be saved, church. Never make it just a thing up here. Oh, yeah, I like Jesus. I think I'll sign on. There. The second thing. Paul says conversion immediately does is it to wait for his son from heaven. Paul says conversion makes me turn from idols to serve God. And the second thing it does makes me long for Jesus to come back. Let me explain something just important about waiting. I don't think Paul means that I'm all heavenly minded and no earthly good. He doesn't mean I just sit around all day looking up to the sky seeing if I can be the first one to see Jesus feet coming down. No. I think I think he means I wait for God the Son from heaven in the sense that his his appearing becomes the motive for everything else I do. His appearing becomes the motive for everything else that I do. And it's very easy to forget about that motivation. We mustn't. We mustn't forget about it because this motivation is what makes my service, my life, Christian at all. And so Renee and I support several children through Child Care Plus. Why do you do it? Well, it would be very easy to do it because I want to be a kind person. We receive letters from them, and and we have their pictures, their faces, smiling faces, and how much better their lives are. And I'm telling you right now, as wonderful as those things are, that's not why we do it. That is not why we do it. Atheists do stuff like that for the same reasons. i do it because I'm waiting for God's Son to return from heaven. That's why I do it. It's the difference between just giving a cup of cold water to somebody, which atheists do, and giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, which is what the text says. We do what we do, not primarily for a child's smile, but for the blessed return of the one who redeemed us and called us to live in his service. Just one example of what Paul means by waiting for his son from heaven, verse 10. Everything we do, we aren't just moral. We aren't just philanthropic. We're anticipating Christ's return. We're preparing our hearts. It's why we go to church and why we go frequently. We're not trying to earn a place in heaven. I get these wisecracks all the time. Please don't do it. It just annoys me. Pastor Don, you know, when you get to heaven, God's not going to ask you how many times you went to church on Sunday like he's taking attendance. Gee, what an insight. Thank you so much. The real question is, where would you rather be if you're waiting for a son from heaven? If you're enjoying the fellowship, that's going to be one day your permanent home. That's why we budget our money differently. And people who aren't thinking about Jesus' return, we know there's limited time. We want our Savior's smile for sinners found and redeemed. Test your heart with that. Are you waiting for his return?